70 resolutions that would guide him in the rest of his life. Jonathan Edwards had only been a believer for a year, but he was determined to live his life with discipline and obedience to the Lord. So he asked the Lord to stamp, as it were, uh, eternity on his eyeballs. Resolve number five says, never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. To help him value his time, Edwards kept an eye on the final hour of his life, the hour he would enter the presence of God. Resolve number seven, never do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That might change some of the things that you do with your time. <clears throat> this resolve of Edwards was to help him keep a proper perspective on uh, priorities of life, time, and possessions. In his diary, he wrote about a possession, how much shall I value this upon my deathbed? Jonathan Edwards reflected on the end of his life because it helped him prioritize his present life at only 18. He understood that time affects eternity. It is precious, but time is short, time is uncertain, and time can never be recovered. You can recover money, you can recover uh, health, but you can't recover time. <clears throat> he was a man, much like the Apostle Paul that we're studying, who said to live is Christ, to die is gain. So we learned from our study in Philippians that Paul had this amazing joy in his life. Regardless of circumstances, he demonstrates to each of us how to live in the midst of difficult, trying days here on earth. For the believer, joy is not based on the circumstances that we're living in, but in the reality that we know we are in a right relationship with God because we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior for forgiveness of sins. So our relationship then comes from knowing Him and the certainty of our future with Him. Nothing can separate us from Him or His love. So God has brought each of us here to this study by His divine providence to accomplish something in each of our lives. The Spirit of God will put his finger on areas in our lives that need to be changed, and he will continue to do his work through the study of his precious word. I know I want to learn from Paul how to have function and have genuine joy in the midst of the trials that we yes. face in life. So, the joy of God's servant Paul. It begins with, and this is 1973, I know, right here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, and I just want to remind you the biblical definition of a saint, even though church denominations have varying opinions about that, but biblically a saint is anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They are referred to as saints. So Paul says to the saints in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice how Timothy refers to he, Paul, he and Timothy as bond servants or slaves of Jesus. It was the lowest kind of slave. That's how he viewed himself. He humbly saw himself as owned by Jesus. After all, it was Jesus who bought him out of the marketplace of sin and death. So his life was devoted to him. There's nothing said here to promote self. You can't help but see the vast difference between so many of you here on the radio or TV uh, who focus on self. Even though Paul was a prisoner of Rome, he understood that his life was not his own, 
and his devotion was to the one and only Master Jesus, who indeed, being sovereign, is the one who allowed him to be in chains, a prisoner of Rome. God redirected his mission field to the place of the palace of the governor. So then Paul's thanksgiving, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. This verse really ought to change how we think and how we pray. Thanksgiving should be the priority way before our lists of requests of what I need you to do, God. Paul thinks back to the time recorded in the book of Acts when he came to the city, shared the good news of the gospel, many believed. He reflects on the work of God's grace in their lives, and that gives him great joy. You know, nobody was perfect, no situation was perfect, and Paul will address unity issues and dangers to be met in the, as we go on in this chapter, in this book. However, there was still much to be thankful for. And so he prayed for them with joy. I recognize my own great shortcoming and failure in praying this way because it's so quick to focus on the negatives and go immediately to the requests and failing to reflect on the goodness of God, how he's already answered amazing prayers and done a great work in the lives of the people we're praying for instead of just focusing on what isn't correct. Paul is thankful for their sharing in the preaching of the gospel according to verse 5, and then he focused on the kindness of others. He recalled their love and their generosity. You know, they had shared with Paul in faith and love, financial support, spiritual warfare, and sacrifice. Certainly they had their faults and their failures, but that is not what Paul focused on. This is a huge lesson for us to learn and apply. And then we see his famous well-known Verse, for I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Here is another reason Paul had joy. Anticipation that despite all of life's struggles and trials, battles with sin and disappointments will one day be done and we will be made perfect. This is absolute confidence that comes from believing God's promise. His work of salvation in the life of every believer is what makes certain our future. It is God who began this work of salvation, and it is by his grace alone. Ephesians 4.1 declares that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So every aspect of our salvation is God. Therefore, the one who begins a work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit even just convicting us and showing us we're sinners and in need of a savior, he's the one who will absolutely fulfill and complete what he began. The day of Christ is the day we'll be glorified, our salvation perfect and complete forever. You know what, the Lord always finishes what he begins. He doesn't have plan B like us or plan C. His plan works. God is the one who saves sinners from eternal punishment He's the one who is the judge of the universe and the only one able to declare someone righteous. Not based on us, but based on Jesus' righteousness. And then he's the one who works to make us more and more like him so that we give him glory. So as awful as life can be on the planet Earth, injustice, pain, sorrow, if you are a believer and you've trusted Christ, you still have reason for joy. The Lord is with us. He's given us his spirit to comfort us. Pain and heartache and disappointment 
is temporary. Our future is absolutely certain and bright. Therefore, we have amazing hope. Another reason Paul had joy was because of the deep affection that these believers in Philippi and he had for one another. This church had been selfless. They had sacrificed for Paul, stood with him in his suffering, made every attempt to meet needs that they were aware of. They were spiritual partners in a really difficult time. Every believer in Philippi, whether they were spiritual or not, they were loved dearly by Paul. This was an affection that each one had because of their, that had been given by the Lord. There's a great longing to be reunited because that's a desire. You know, people you love and you're separated from, you want to be reunited with. And that's how it was. Then Paul prays, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In these verses, we see clearly how Paul prayed. And it's an example for us to follow. First of all, he prays that their love would abound. Having a godly love for other people is just something that needs to grow and develop and learn to sacrifice and learn to give more and more and more. It is also the evidence of a person truly knowing the Lord. This is a love that is not based on how we feel. Rather, it's an intentional choice to show kindness and reach out to meet people and help them in their needs. And this can be expressed in so many ways. As creative as you are, you can come up, whether it's financial help, a meal, a call, a card, a coffee date, whatever. This love can grow and abound throughout a believer's life. It should just be continuing to multiply and develop and grow. There'll always be a struggle with sin that we must battle and put to death our own selfishness. Otherwise, our love will not grow or abound. It'll just be thinking about us. Our flesh wants everyone to show us this kind of unconditional love, right? Abound in love towards me, have a love that's active, but often we fail to see how we are to be growing in this kind of love. There's no arrival point. There's no end to the potential of how each of us can grow in abounding by loving others more. It's a lifetime calling. It's what we should be praying for in the lives of the people we know. Then he prays that our love would abound in real knowledge and discernment. God's word is the, tr is the basis of what's knowledge and truth. Love has to be grounded in the truth of God's word. So when we have knowledge about the Lord, and we see the importance then of obedience to his truth, we are told to love, actually Peter says in 1 Peter that we are to fervently love one another from the heart. And that idea in the word fervently is to stretch or strain or to go the limit. Reminds me in the Olympics watching the track and field runners strain to be uh, coming across to get the gold or silver or bronze. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This godly love that Paul prays for also grows in discernment, so you know how to demonstrate it. We should pray for understanding of God's truth that will produce a, a living lifestyle that's honoring to the Lord. Then we're told to examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil in 1 Thessalonians 5. So I wonder, do you pray for others 
this way? Or is your only focus on a physical need or financial need uh, or really praying so people will change so your life will be easier? Uh, this is an example of how we need to be praying. Having been praying for abounding love and knowledge and discernment makes it possible for his next request so that they would discern and determine or carefully see what is best. The things that are excellent in their attitudes, their deeds, their thoughts, their action, that's what Paul's praying for. He desires that they live lives devoted to their Savior, maturing in their faith, strong in their faith, effective in their service for the Lord. The goal should be for every believer to be blameless and have integrity, not falling into a lifestyle of sin, not characterized by sin. We all sin, and hopefully we repent as soon as we're aware of that sin and press on, so that we are blameless at the day of Jesus. That day when we will all appear, I remind you, before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That is the Bema seat where Jesus will hand out rewards or not. So, having been uh, praying for all these things, he goes on to pray that they be filled with the fruit of righteousness. These are the good works we read about Ephesians 2.10, that God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, all of this prayer in verse 11 is to the glory and praise of God. So, we are given amazing insight on how to pray for each other in just these few verses. You can memorize these verses. The question really for each of us is to determine is whether we will make our prayers more God-focused, more God-honoring. We all need someone praying for us that our love would abound more and more and more and that we would have greater discernment. We all need prayer to grow in godliness so that we are blameless in how we live every day, how we speak to people every day. There is never a place for pride for any progress made because it is only the glory of God, and he gets the praise. So what changes might you make to implement how you pray for your husband, for your children, your family members, your friends? This prayer is recorded for us to learn and to put into practice. So Paul's joy in ministry goes on in spite of pain, and he had a lot of pain. Now I want you to know, brother, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, an elite group of soldiers, and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So from a human perspective, we can understand why these Philippians, who loved Paul and he loved them, were so concerned about him. They had to think, now his missionary outreach has come to an end. He may be beheaded by Rome. What's going to happen to Paul? Think of your own pastor or missionary you loved was arrested and imprisoned. You too would have a great concern, like these Philippians had for Paul. It had been years since they had seen Paul, and they were uncertain of his conditions. And so he's writing them. And this is what he says. Paul wants him to know and understand something clearly. Despite being in prison, Paul was not in any way discouraged or distressed. 
you know, when you love people and you know they're in the midst, midst of a hard time, <clears throat> and you speak to them and they're at peace and at rest in the Lord, it is a comfort, it is an encouragement that they're surviving. So this was a great encouragement Paul gave to the Philippians. Paul clearly states that his present circumstances, as awful as they were, had actually turned out for greater progress of the gospel message being spread. Being a prisoner had not hindered or restricted his ministry. <coughs> Thirdly, this progress has the idea of moving forward even though there were many obstacles. Paul's imprisonment due to the hate and lies and false accusations of others, as hard as that was, had been used by God to further the gospel to bring it to a group of people in the political social elite in Rome. We know from Acts 28 that Paul was under constant guard so soldiers were chained to him 24 hours a day, taking him to the bathroom. They would have to listen to him speak to those who came to visit Paul. They would have seen his love, his gentleness, his courage, his loyalty to Jesus. They would have heard these letters we're studying being dictated as they sat there. Amazing. Even Caesar's household was then exposed to the truth of the gospel because of Paul being in prison. Only God can orchestrate those kind of circumstances and take something that really is evil, an innocent man being put in prison, waiting to be uh, judged whether he can live or not. And God is using it in an amazing mission field. Fourthly, because of Paul's boldness, fellow believers had gained courage. Apparently they had been fearful to witness because... They were scared to be imprisoned like Paul, but seeing Paul and the Lord using him where he was gave them a greater courage so they were not so afraid. And here's the real pain that I see that comes in loving people and ministry. He says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed to the defense of the gospel the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress. That was their goal, to cause him distress in his imprisonment. But Paul's reaction, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. That was a choice of his will, to choose to rejoice. It's one thing for Paul to be mistreated, lied about, put in prison by unbelievers. But when your opposition are your fellow believers, probably those you shared the gospel with in the first place, that's a whole different level of pain. Paul speaks of fellow believers who, who taught the truth of Jesus. These were not false teachers. These were not who uh, those like we'll see in Galatians who were getting off track of the real gospel. <clears throat> These uh, were people who we're in the ministry, just like today, men and women doing ministry with wrong motives. Envy and strife speak of the sin of jealousy over what someone else has, and it always leads to conflict and hostility. <clears throat> People can have great theology, they can have a wonderful understanding of scripture and doctrine, but then they can do their service with wrong motives. Such workers resent the success of others. And actually, they tried, in this case, to bring Paul harm. They tried to hurt him and hurt his reputation. You know what? Envy in the heart eventually shows up in an outward expression of strife. It always does. You can stuff it, 
you can deny that you are envious, but it's going to come out in strife. Such people are contentious. They're preaching because they love their own recognition and their own ego. They resented that Paul was well-loved and well-spoken of, so they hoped they could add pain to Paul by making him jealous. They were free. They are doing the work. Oh, you, you're in prison. Those who preached out of selfish ambition were like politicians trying to get support of people and have a following of their own. <clears throat> it's so sad that there are many today, and I hope it's not any of you who actually listen to preachers like this and even send money to people like this, when all they talk about is themselves and how great they are in God's kingdom, that is a big red flag. Do not listen. Do not send your money. Beware. Internal motives matter. They matter to God. It is so hard to invest your life in ministry to, for others, only to have them turn around and speak evil about you and try to bring you personal harm. How the name of Jesus has been dishonored throughout the centuries by believers inflicting pain on other believers. But even in this, this didn't destroy his joy. Like, I give up, look at these losers, these are idiots. I mean, no, he chose to have joy. Paul was grateful for the courage and boldness of those with proper motives who shared the gospel, who, who did so because they loved Jesus and were concerned about people who didn't know of him. What is absolutely stunning is the truth that Paul <clears throat> says in, what I, in verse 18, yes, I will rejoice regardless. Paul was not bitter by their hurtful words or actions. The gospel will still be proclaimed. It still has the power to bear fruit, despite those sharing it with wrong motives. I always think back to the donkey who spoke, you know, back in the Old Testament. So if God can use a donkey to bring clarity to somebody who's acting like a fool, <clears throat> he can use unspiritual people who actually do know the gospel. You talk about rough circumstances, put in prison, chains, no personal freedom, attacks on your reputation, lies being spread about you, fellow believers you share the gospel with trying to hurt you. But Paul still had joy. The Lord enabled him to respond, I will rejoice. And Paul has, a, uh, Paul has joy as long as Jesus is exalted. You can't do the whole chapter near this to say there's so much to cover but he says this for I know this this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain we know from this passage of scripture that Paul experienced deep sorrows, prison, personal attacks, physical pain, we've seen throughout scripture, is waiting to hear if he's going to be sentenced to death by Rome. Yet Paul did not let all these circumstances rob him of his joy. And how is that possible? Uh, how can you and I have the same response? Well, he has confidence in God's word. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, not I hope. He knew, Paul is certain, just as Job was certain, that God would deliver him from his physical trials and the false accusations of people. Paul knew that it was God causing all things to work together for good. He knew that one way or the other, he would be delivered from his present circumstances. 
This difficulty was temporary. These present trials and heartaches are not forever. He was delivered. We will be delivered. Therefore, we have reason to have hope and even joy. Then Paul associated his deliverance with the prayers of these believers on his behalf. Because the truth is, which is not even anything we can grasp, the sovereign God of the universe, who has everything under control, has chosen the means of prayer as how he changes things. That's, that's mind-boggling. But the truth is, prayers of his people accomplish his will. That's why prayer has to be a priority. It was to Paul, and he was so thankful for these Philippians praying for him. And then Paul had the word of God and the prayers of believers to strengthen him and the Holy Spirit to comfort him, to give him the power to continue on to depend on the Spirit to pray when he didn't even know how to pray. And it is the Spirit who produces love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and long-suffering and gentleness and self-control. Paul was also assured of the promise of Christ. He had a firm hope and confidence one day he would be vindicated. <clears throat> you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ would be exalted in his body. Paul had absolute confidence in the will of God. He wasn't sure whether he would continue to serve the Lord in this life. Uh, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He understood that any and everything that we possess in this life is fleeting. What a great reminder for us that should be the reality for every believer. What we must each ask ourselves, and I have it there on the screen, is you have to fill in the blank. For me to live is... What pops into your mind? Ease, comfort, financial, ease, health, a person, a child, a spouse. Those can all be gracious gifts from the Lord that he gives us, but they cannot be the reason we live. For me to live is Christ. <clears throat> he must be our most important. Christ was the focus and the purpose and the reason Paul Lived. And because that was the case, he realized that when the moment of his death came, in God's divine plan, being in his very presence without any of the heartaches and struggles of this life was absolute gain. Yes. As believers, we are to live well-pleasing to the Lord, and in death we are to die well, knowing how amazing our gain will be when we finally see him face to face. Yes. Paul was hard-pressed to decide to be with Christ, to stay here on earth, to depart, he says, which has the picture of being unloosed like a boat setting sail to free, freely uh, leave and sail out. <clears throat> uh, that's what it is. Life on this earth is temporary, and when we die, we move into our eternal home. Paul teaches us clearly that to depart from this life is to be with Christ. There is no soul sleep. There is no unconscious state until the resurrection. When we are a believer in Jesus and we die, we are immediately with Christ, which Paul says is very much better. No battles with sin, no sorrow and suffering, no pain, no disappointment, no sickness, no weakness in body or mind. Instead, we will be like him, we will see him. No more need for faith, because everything will be sight. This is the confidence that Paul had, that Job had, when he said, I shall see God. I wonder, if, is this your confidence? I don't know all of you here. It certainly can be. Jesus made this possible by leaving the glories of heaven after he created the heavens and the earth. 
And coming down, becoming a man, to die on a cross, to bear the wrath of God in the place of guilty sinners like you and I, as he hung on the cross. So the question is, have you seen your own wicked sinfulness, and have you turned from your sin and trusted that Jesus' death makes possible you to be forgiven, so you can be right with God? Nobody can earn God's favor by doing anything. The Bible says all righteousness are like filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is the plight of every person born. However, that can all change. By faith, will you call upon this great Savior to forgive you and put your trust in him as the one who bore your eternal punishment. I pray you will surrender your life to him. And if you know him already and have trusted him, is Christ the reason you live? Or is he a tagon after like the third or fourth down the line? <clears throat> Everything else in this world, ladies, is fleeting away. Paul's passion and his focus for living was that Christ would be glorified. That is how he had joy, despite the circumstances he found himself in. Trials that come into your life are not an accident. They have a purpose, and it is for a further opportunity for God to be glorified in your life and for the gospel to be spread. So whether it's a hospital room, uh, a clinic for treatment for a sickness, a difficult job situation, or being homebound or whatever, we all, if we know Christ, have reason for hope. We can have the same attitude and response of Paul. There is heartache and there's pain in this life. No denying it, it's real, it's unjust world, it's unfair world, but it's temporary. There is a finish line. And when we get there, human words will never begin to express what we will see. Paul exhorts us, and I close with this verse from 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So don't give up, ladies. Keep toiling on. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you gave us this letter that Paul wrote to this church that he loves so very dear. I thank you for what we can learn and apply, and I do ask that you touch our own hearts with what needs to change and how we pray and how we view our circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would teach each of us to respond and rest in the joy that we have in knowing you are sovereign and you are good. I thank you for this time together and pray that you will continue to open our eyes to see the truth you want us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.